As we reach the tipping points of climate change, how will our world change? Greenland has already lost 4,700 billion metric tons of ice, an amount that is enough to flood the entire United States in 1.5 feet of water. Peter D. Dietlifsen is an associate professor at the Niels Bohr Institute at Copenhagen University. The institute was founded in 1921 as the Institute for Theoretical Physics. Dietlifsen is a professor in physics of ice, climate, and earth. His fields of interest include climate research, turbulence, meteorology, complex systems, time series analysis, and statistical physics. Peter Dietlifsen, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Thank you. So your work often touches on complex systems and tipping points. What do you feel are some of the most critical complex systems dynamics that we should be aware of when studying climate and earth systems? In the climate system, we have what we call tipping elements of the system, where we have the expectation that they do not just react linearly to whatever change we make to them. You could imagine that if an ecosystem is under pressure, you can hit a tipping point after which it cannot uphold its own existence and it will very quickly degrade to another state. There will be, say, a tipping point between a rainforest, which is a forest that rains on itself, and when the forest is gone, the whole moisture and rain circulation has changed and it turns into a savanna, a savanna that will not just grow into a forest. And that is very complex if that happens, and that's something we're worried about in the tropical rainforest, while the uh, European and North American rainforests, you can clear cut that and the trees will grow back in. So that's not the same kind of tipping you have there. So when the former president of Brazil says, well, we're just doing for the Amazon what the Europeans did to their forests. In some sense, he's right. We cut down all the forests here, but if people magically disappeared from Europe, you can return in a few hundred years and it will be all forests. And that's not the case for tropical rainforest. If you destroy that system, it will not just return. Another thing I guess we will talk more about, that's the Atlantic Ocean circulation. The IPCC identifies several tipping points of climate change due to human activity. One of them is the massive loss of the Greenland ice sheet. Can you tell us about that? Well, on the Northern Hemisphere, we have one big ice sheet, that's Greenland, which is covered in ice three kilometers thick. And it sticks two kilometers into the atmosphere. So it's a mountain of ice. And it can uphold itself. And latitudes where, if you look at Scandinavia, which is more or less in the same position as Greenland, there's no ice there. So you could sort of have two states. And the fact that the ice is there means that it sticks into the cold part of the atmosphere. So this is a system that can uphold its own cold climate because above a certain height, all the snow that falls will not melt. It will just create more and more ice. And at the rim of the ice sheet, it will melt. And there's a balance, called a mass balance, between what comes on top and what melts at the sides. Now, if the climate warms up, it gets warmer on top. So the area where the snow accumulation makes more ice becomes smaller, and the melting area becomes larger. And at some point, we hit a tipping point such that the ice will start melting. You cannot hold the balance between snowing and melting. So it becomes smaller and smaller, which means that it becomes lower and lower in the atmosphere. And when it becomes lower, the surface comes into a warmer atmosphere. And that means that you have an accelerated process. It's called a positive feedback. And at some point, you can hit that tipping point. And that means that you might have a small increase in the temperature, 
but you have a large consequence if you pass that tipping point. And with the glacier, the most concerning there is that the ice will end up as water in the world oceans, and that will lead to sea level rise, which can threaten cities along coasts all over the world. So these are tipping elements in the climate system. And the tipping element that we've been looking at here is what's called the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation. And that circulation, the very large-scale water masses that transport heat from tropical areas onto the northern part of the Atlantic. Sometimes it's being confused with the Gulf Stream, which is warm water from the Mexican Gulf that's blown up along the American East Coast, the western boundary of the Atlantic Ocean, and then across. That's part of bringing heat to the North Atlantic. And this is driven by the wind, and that will stay. It doesn't change for the climate change. There's a corresponding, it's called the western boundary current because it's the western boundary of the ocean. And there's a corresponding current in the, of the core shiro that, that hits the coast of Japan. However, this large scale circulation that I'm talking about does not exist in the Pacific. And what drives that is the sinking of heavy water in the northern part of the ocean. It's called buoyancy. Sometimes we call it the Greenland pump. So in the Atlantic, ocean water can be heavy for two reasons. It can be salty. Adding salt to the water makes it heavier. And it can be cold. Cold water is heavier than warm water. That means that cold, salty water bringing the heat up to the North Atlantic, cooling off to the atmosphere, warming Europe, uh, will then be heavy and it will start sinking. And that whole sinking drives this overall circulation that goes into the depths of the ocean. So it's a circulation that takes water from the surface and brings it down to a kilometer, two kilometers depth and a slow conveyor that takes it back. In, in the deep ocean. And that makes the climate in Europe and Northern Europe very different from the climate in a corresponding place on the American West Coast. So Europe has a position to the Atlantic, a little bit like the northern part of Canada and Alaska has to the Pacific Ocean. And there you could compare the two climates. Alaska is a very cold place because the ocean is very cold there. While Europe is a relatively warm place. I mean, Scandinavia is at the latitudes of Alaska, northern Canada. So that's part of the climate of the Atlantic Meridian overturning that brings water, warm water up. That could be in two states. It could be in the on state. It's turned on now, as we have experienced it. And it's been turned on for the past 12,000 years since the past ice age. The last ice age, northern Europe was a very cold place. Where I'm sitting in Denmark, there was two kilometers of ice, like in Greenland today. So if this one turns off, which will happen if the water is not heavy enough to sink, and how does the water become not so heavy? Well, that happens if fresh water lists in the northern Atlantic. And where do we get fresh water? We get fresh water from precipitation, from rain, from river runoff, rivers into the Labrador Sea, and up, even from Mississippi and other big rivers. We get fresh water from Greenland melting. That's ice melting out into the ocean. We get fresh water actually export from the Arctic Ocean into the North Atlantic. Now, all these sources of fresh water makes the surface water lighter, and that could shut off this overturning circulation. And when it's shut off, it has passed a tipping point so that it will not easily return to its state when it's shut down. Then you actually have to get the surface water to be very salty in order to get this to run again. And what happens if that shuts down? What, what kind of world are we looking at? If that shuts down, roughly speaking, the climate of Northern Europe would be like the climate of Alaska. So modern studies, which basically climate models that actually simulate what happens when it's shut down, would say that England becomes like northern Norway, which means that, you know, food security and things like that will be 
Australian because you cannot grow much crops in northern Norway. And I think I'll say that you know, precipitation changes so places that are wet might become dry and so on. So so these are of course severe consequences for Europe. But in some sense, this is going in the opposite direction of global warming. We say, okay, we all sorry about we're getting into a warmer world, but I'm sorry about cooling here. But the warmth the warm water that does not then flow from the tropics into the North Atlantic will stay in the tropics. And there, you're not counterbalancing global warming. There, you will have the heating on top of the global warming. And that I see as maybe the largest problem we have is that the tropics become even warmer. And we have to realize if you live in a place where mean temperatures are maybe late 30s Celsius and they become in the 40s, Livelihood becomes very difficult. Indeed. And so obviously we want to prevent that off state, that tipping point. Mm. But if it is reached, what are some of the geoengineering solutions or how to reverse that? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I mean, people saying that, oh, we could change this salt balance in, you know, dropping salt in the Atlantic. That's a very naive position. So, I mean, my view is that the only thing we can do and what we should do, which is stop doing the geoengineering we are doing now, which means adding so much greenhouse gas to the atmosphere that we are changing the climate. This is the kind of conscious geoengineering we are doing now. And this is what we have to try to change. We have to stop emissions. We have to speed up the green transition and world economy. And what our study adds to that is that it's not only a question of reaching, say, 1.5 degrees as in the Paris Agreement or 2 degrees or whatever will be the realistic target, but we have to do it fast because when our projection tells that this is something that could happen within decades, maybe 30 years, which is much, much shorter time than discussing sea level rise from melting glaciers, which is of the order of hundreds of years. The adjustment in 30 years is much more challenging than an adjustment in 200 years. Indeed. And I saw, perhaps this was incorrect, I saw that this turning off state could dramatically slow down, at least it's, it's just starting to 2025. Is, is that correct? Or help me understand? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's part of the statements that we came with, which is an analysis where we carefully put in all the statistical confidence levels. And somehow I'm a little sad that it came out in this way that we start this early. I must more believe that sort of mid-century it's what we have to think about. And of course, it's the result of the analysis of these observations that this could happen. But we also have to take into account that there are uncertainties beyond the confidence levels you get out of a, a statistical calculation. Mainly, can we trust that what we observe here really is the AMOG, the ocean circulation? Because this has only been measured for the past 20 years. In the past 20 years, we have been in climate change. So when these buoys across the Atlantic were sits down sensors into the ocean and takes up data from that, and it showed that in the beginning of this 20-year period, it, it declined. But now that is actually part of approaching a tipping point that the variations around the mean flow state here becomes more and larger and larger as the negative feedbacks that will keep the system in place becomes weaker and weaker until it cannot uphold that state. Now... The uncertainty that I talked about is that, well, in order to see if these are just natural variations that things go up and down, which they do many places in the climate system, we have to know what is the natural state. How was it before the climate change? We need to go back like, more than 100 years 
in order to so have that benchmark of where were we? What is the natural variability? And in order to do that, we have to use indirect measurements since it's not been measured more than these 20 years. And that's why oceanographers have constructed what's called fingerprints. Are there measurements in the surface of the ocean? Temperature in the surface of the ocean has been measured for many, many years because ships have sailed across and taken water samples up from the surface and measured the temperature. So using the surface temperatures in an area south of Greenland, that's an area that should receive the heating from the ocean current. And if that ocean current is weakened, it doesn't bring as much warm water up. So you would see that part of the ocean cooling down. And that's of course strange. We have a warming world, and on top of a warming world, we see a cooling down in a specific area. So that is the fingerprint that we've been looking at. And that is one uncertainty. What if the connection between the surface temperature and the ocean flow has changed over time? And, and that's the reason why we will have to, in the future, also keep monitoring this very, very closely. And you spoke before about the tipping points regarding rainforests' potential to become transformed into savannas. We were talking about geoengineering. Some people are obviously rightly critical when it's just not plausible or it's like a last-ditch effort that that won't really be effective. But, you know, we've spoken to those who are attempting to green certain parts of the deserts or, you know, transform savannas. What do you think about that and how does that feed into the big picture? Does that create instability or is that a good idea because they weren't always savannas or they weren't always deserts? Oh, that that is a very good question. I would say in some sense, reforestation is also like a geoengineering thing. I mean, who wouldn't dream of a green Sahara? You know, it would store a lot of carbon, which is part of the problem. It would maybe create a different local climate and so on. This is a, a very complex system that we are messing with or, or changing. And obviously, we don't know how you know, predictable these changes are. And there are two parts of it. One is that, well, we might change things, but they might not go as we think. It might be that we plant a lot of trees and irrigate, and as soon as we leave it to itself, it degrades again. So that's sort of a failed attempt. You have to get across, again, the other kind of tipping point that would make this forest self-sustained. And that would require, of course, that it would be so big that it would actually change precipitation patterns. We are very uncertain if you can do that and how it will happen. I mean, there are reasons also why we have green belts. This is called the ITCZ, the intertropical convergence zone, where you have all the cumulus warming at the rain, where the air that rises to warming descends. You have this very warm, very dry air coming down. So what you see is a green belt of forest, and on the side you see deserts. That's part of a natural system, the circulation there. And on top of that, at the rim of the, the region south of Sahara, which is not really desert, more like savanna, you might be able to change that. But that's also connected with the monsoon system. And all these chaotic systems are very hard to do. But the way we've deforested, the way we've made agriculture and so on, we have messed with these plants. I mean, if you look at the biomass in mammals, it's cows, it's sheep, rhinoceroses, it's giraffes, whales, it's everything. 96% of that mass is human or livestock. That is, to me, an extremely scary number that, you know, one nature has sold into our world. The other side, which would be, you know, 
opening new passages and putting stuff into the stratosphere that would reflect sunlight, making sort of the permanent smog situation. I think that's a terrible idea. Also, I might change things that I'd be happy with where I live, but people somewhere else might be suffering from consequences of that. But the worst part of that is also that we commit future generations. Imagine that as we do keep emitting greenhouse gases, putting in more and more aerosols in order to compensate, which means that this makes it a, a, a much, much worse situation for the next generations. They're committed to do the same else. They get the full blown climate change. So in that sense, I'm very skeptical with geoengineering. Indeed, we're already putting 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. And you'd have to think about what aerosols and, and different things would do. It's that very delicate, complex systems that you're really helping us understand. The term abrupt climate change, it's raising concerns about the potential for rapid and dramatic shifts in climate. Can you yeah. explain this concept of rate-dependent cascading tipping points? Yeah, I mean, oh, it's very complicated thing, but timescales matter. In a lot of what we do, we have to be guided by climate models. It's a huge computer model set. Calculated. And that's also why the IPCC assessed if this tipping would happen in the 21st century. They assessed that this is very unlikely because the models do not show it in the 21st century. So in that sense, we're at odds with these results. And then you might ask, who's right in this sense? And what we do know is that the models, which are some of the best we can do, and these are huge models in which we only have limited possibilities of really trying out the different parameters that we fit in the box because they're so expensive to run. We need them in very high resolution and everything. So just one of the IPCC scenarios for the next hundred years, it's like half a year on a supercomputer. So these are very heavy in that sense. And they have been tuned to fit the 20th century climate. Think of these as, as a weather prediction model. If I run a weather prediction model, I tell you, you know, in a week, it, it will be raining. And then I wait for a week and then it's sunshine. And then I know I was wrong. And of course, there are, you know, statistical factors in here because it's a chaotic system and, and it, it limited predictability and all these things. But I can check my result. Now, if I run for 100 years, I, I can only check the result waiting 100 years. That's, of course, completely impractical. So that's the reason why, well, I have to go back in time and see how it would do there. So that's where we fit. And if you look at what happened in the 20th century, and what, what is happening in the models with the 21st century is that the temperature increase that they predict and that they show through the 20th century is pretty much very one-to-one, -one, linearly dependent on the CO2 concentration. And the response until now has been pretty linear. But that's our worries that if, when we hit a tipping point, that will no longer be the case. We have nonlinear fast transitions. And now, back to your question, how fast will these be? What, what is it? And the rock change. If you look at the climate models that actually show, say, a, a, a collapse of the AMOG, first of all, you really have to kick them in to do it. So they're very conservative and they are not giving a very abrupt change. So say the slowdown of the AMOG take like 100 years in such a model. Now, is that also too slow? Well, how would I know? In, in some sense, we have not experienced a, a collapse of the AMOG in the past 20,000 years. So we have to go before that into the glacial climate, which is a very different climate from our present climate. And But in there, we've seen these abrupt changes from an on-state to an off-state. Now, those changes, they were very, very dramatic. They showed an, a jump from the off-state to the on-state and from the on-state to the off-state every few thousand years. But the change lasted like a decade. So we have changes of about 10 degrees in that area within 10 years. 
Now imagine 10 degrees in 10 years. This is to be compared with the present climate change, which is of the order of one and a half degree in a hundred years. These were indeed very, very dramatic. So this other cold climate had changes in a decade, while the monastery changes in a century. So if we're now sort of careful and say, well, maybe something in, in between and maybe even closer to the decade than the century, because we know that the models are slow. Then these are climate change that are quite worrisome because it's not because we're in the best of all worlds. I mean, maybe we are, but the globe has been much warmer. I mean, we've had much more CO2 in the atmosphere. I mean, all the gas was out there once, hundreds of million years ago. It's the speed at which things change. We've adapted to this climate, right? When ice ages hit the fauna and people could migrate and move, that is much more difficult to do today. Say if the livelihood in great parts of Africa and Middle East, other places become unbearable, then people have to move and migrate. And that's just very difficult in the modern world at these times. I mean, there are two things you asked about rain-induced shipping and so on. That's sort of a technical term that tells you that the change of whatever controls the system the A mark is how much water you put into the, how much fresh water you put into the ocean. And if that change very quickly, you might cross a barrier due to what we call rate-induced tipping. And how that affects other parts of the system in terms of sort of cascading the effect into other parts is highly unknown. We have a tendency to, to believe in our models because that's the best we can do. Now we understand the physical system. And you might compare to the situation in your other Years ago, Albert Einstein, as the only one person, came out with a really strange idea that time and space and so on, they mixed together in his theory of relativity. It was not like you need a hundred scientists to say something and then you say, okay, this is halfway true. Everybody said, okay, he found it, it was right, it's there. And this is what we taught in, in textbooks. Now with the climate models, it's a little different. You have 50 different climate models. Give a little bit different results, but what IPCC does, they have or what we have in, in the system are these huge model projects. So the last IPCC report bases on the sixth round, CMIP6 climate model intercomparison project number six, where you sort of take the average of the models. And that's why you sort of see a band of possible futures from all the models. And you sort of take the average of that. I mean, if you really trusted your model, you wouldn't need 50 models, right? So, so we know that there are big uncertainties and it is difficult to do with models. And we do also know that time after time we see climate change. And one example is the, the loss of Arctic sea ice. There's an old band of models that say, well, it will be lost at some pace. And then you go and observe and then you see that observations fall below what any of the models say. IPCC, it's a wonderful multinational effort of scientists yeah. presenting models to, to governments in order to change policies. But it has been criticized, I believe, for being too conservative or just because it is a consensus approach, it can dampen the stark results, right? Yes, that's true. That's true. But I, I think they also do a great job in, in saying that where, where are uncertainties and so on. But of course, making a consensus and develop the whole sort of language around the highly likely unknown and so on. It can create a feeling that we actually know better than we do what is going to happen. And of course, things like hitting a tipping point is something that has an enormous consequence. And usually when we have to deal 
with catastrophic happenings. We would usually consider these as high-risk, low-probability things. This is also what like an, an insurance company does. I mean, you would, you have to pay your fire insurance. Very, very few people experience that their house burns down. Everybody has a fire insurance. And if you do an economic calculation, you probably not pay off. But the consequence is just so large that you would not, I mean, losing your home, you have to have that insurance here. Now, if we are changing climate so much that these become not sort of low likelihood, high risk, but just likelihood, you know, just a 1%, 10%, it's 1% is chance or risk that something very dramatic will happen that changes our livelihood. Then we really have to react to that. And we have to also consider that that the economics that we have to sacrifice on that have to be more. Yes. And you discussed the challenges and opportunities and bridging this gap between climate research and policy implementation. Yeah. The big problem we have with climate change is that this is not like any other crisis because it influences all parts of life. The world has just been through a, a pandemic where enormous resources have been spent on rescuing and vaccinating the populations and so on. And parts of the world spent enormous amount of money on the war in Europe and Ukraine. Both cases, when nations spend money here, they're saving their population. They're doing it for their security and so on. But here we really have what is not already, I guess, back from Aristotle. It's the tragedy of the commons. The climate is common to everybody. So if I spend a large effort in saving the climate at my expense, I only benefit the small part. And I don't benefit if you don't also do the same. So that's why we, in Eastern, the small European countries, we have all this here. Well, why spend so much if the Chinese or the Yankees or they don't spend? They listen vain. And that makes the problem really, really difficult. And that's also why international agreements must be part of the solution, even though I think we can all agree that the UN system doesn't really have the muscle that we hope it would have. And big nations are sort of guiding all these children, you know, I'm not stepping up unless you're stepping up, right? So, so the stepping up is very, very slow. Then we can think about what can this society, what can non-governmental organizations, what can we do? What is, you know, change of living and so on. I live in a small country, Denmark, and very environmentally shown, but we are also a very rich country. So we are on the sort of bad side of, I think our footprint, you know, runs out in March or April and the year some have been spending, spending our part of the resources, which is not because we do a lot of things badly in Denmark. It's just because we are so many rich people. And the challenge there, challenge for me as a person, for you is, you know, what can I do, right? Yeah, I can, you know, I, I did myself and I'm a physicist. I like doing experiments. So, you know, how terrible would it be for me to not eat meat, right? I was used to up Friday night, go home, put on a steak and, and a bottle of red wine. That was sort of the easy thing. How terrible would it be to be a vegetarian? So we started getting this like you know, four or five years ago. And it's not terrible. It's their challenges. The problem is here, there's a spillover, right? In principle, you know, I don't buy an expensive steak. I buy some vegetables that are cheaper. Okay. So I have money left. If I spend that money, you know, on an airplane ticket somewhere, then it doesn't really matter. That's the spillover effect. And then if you have spillover as a rich person, at the end of the day, you end up 
emitting just as much CO2. I think in our part of the world, and if we have to be front runners, we have to crack that nut and say, well, we do like to think that our children should have a better world than we grew up in, and they should be better off and so on. And so it should be a different kind of wealth, right? The wealth should not be having a large car and a big house and a lot of goods. It should be in other ways. It's a little bit, and I know this is from a very privileged position. I say, well, okay, I can, I have a choice. I can go to a, you know, Michelin gourmet restaurant, or I can go to the McDonald's. One thing cost me, you know, $500 more. And if I go to McDonald's, I, I can spend those $500 flying to London on the weekend, right? This is not what I should do. I should go to the gourmet restaurant. And so, and that's also, I mean, that is absolutely not a degradation in a way of life. So on. I could go through the, Broadway shows six times a year rather than two times. It's expensive, but it's a way of spending my money without emitting CO2 in some sense. So that's a cultural thing. And I know at the individual level, it's not solving the problems as, as such. We also need political measures. As a member of the generation of hopeful yet tired young environmental activists, I often find myself discouraged by the size of the impacts of climate change. As Peter Dietlifson says, the climate is the one thing that we all have in common, and thus its changes and catastrophes affect us all. Actions that affect the climate in the US also impact China, Kenya, or Australia. I often find myself wondering, is it even worth making small changes to my life, like becoming vegetarian or buying secondhand, when any change I make isn't enough to make a global difference? In other words, it is extremely easy to lose hope when politicians and world leaders seem to be working against your efforts. However, if we support cultural changes and shifts in values, then these small changes can be made by whole communities and a real difference can be made. I observed significant differences in cultural values during my semester in Copenhagen that made the city more environmentally conscious than many other cities. For example, the urban infrastructure prioritizes bicycles over cars. People are incentivized to bike because it is the safest and fastest way to get places. This urban design, working together with the value that the Danes place on spending time outdoors for their physical and mental health, means that there are fewer cars on the streets and less carbon emitted. Another example is the care and the attention that the people of Copenhagen give to their green spaces. Even though Copenhagen is a city, its people strongly value nature and green spaces throughout the city are thoughtfully taken care of, improving air quality as well as human well-being. If some of these cultural shifts were made in American cities and other cities across the world, we could make great strides in combating climate change. No one person has to alter their life too harshly. It is the collective behavioral change that makes the difference significant. It is everyone's responsibility to do their part, but we cannot rely on others to uphold their ethical duty. We have to put in the work regardless of whether other people are putting forth the same effort. It is crucial that we remain hopeful and that we fight for the small yet powerful societal shifts that pave the way for a more sustainable future, one that we are proud to pass on to future generations. Now, back to the interview. Yes, to incentivize those kind of personal choices. As you rightly say, it's not just about changing behaviors, but in fact, changing our values. You're a member of the complexity group. How do you see the field of complex systems evolving in the context of climate and earth science? I think, I mean, complex systems is it's a fun field because we can jump on anything, right? Like yeah, the spread of COVID and, and, and all these things. And a lot of this touches onto behavioral changes. People are talking about, we have the transition now in the our part of the world where everybody is driving their cars. Of course, Copenhagen is a little better because we cycle here. And the countryside and so on, people have their cars. We change to electric cars. 
go back 15, 20 years, an electric car, that was exactly not what, you know, anyone wanted to be seen in. Elon Musk, someone right? you know, I need to get Tom Cruise into an electric car. Then everybody wants an electric car. And that's sort of a change of mindset. And that is strong. But there's a lot of talk about the clothing industry, fashion, and so on. I mean, it's a high percentage of our ambitions can only wear the same dress once at a party. And, and of course, it's pushed by commercials and, and economic interests and so on. But somehow we have to figure out how do we make this change of mindset? Now, it has to be the coolest thing in the world that you buy your clothes with Red Cross so you wear it until it's worn out. We've been touching a little bit on the geoengineering and some of the possibilities of uh, new technologies as you think about the future and AI and how could it be enlisted to mitigate climate change? What are the issues you feel around governance so that it really serves our needs and not the needs of the technologists? Yeah. That's, that's a very good question. I mean, of course, technologies, I'm a physicist, so I love new technologies and smart stuff, better batteries and energy systems. And there are other parts, taking the resources, the bio crisis, and we're a little more worried about that, how we do, because we have to fit a lot of people in and we have an upcoming middle class in the developing countries that has exactly as much right as we have to, to do what they want. One example with the AI, which might aid us, but AI is really sort of an advanced way also of seeing what's the mental state of all of us. AI is just an advanced way of copying and understanding what's out there. Yeah, I made a small experiment, which was asked three different AIs, Google's Monikan and Chat, GPT and Bing, just three different AIs. And I asked them the following question. I'm a climate concerned activist. I uh, want to know how can I uh, argue for it's okay for me to fly to London to go to a restaurant. That was the question I asked. And I asked these three different. And they came up with three different answers, which is kind of an interesting exercise. One was sort of along the lines that, yeah, climate change is not an individual problem. It's at the political level. And, you know, what you do as an individual is, is just limited. So that was sort of my excuse. The other was, well, you, you would compensate. You would go to a vegan restaurant and when, when you fly there and so on and compensate for the flying in, in other ways, right? And the third one. I mean, none of them would answer, hey, guy, how about considering not going? So but somehow it will influence our mindsets. But it has to come with some sort of movement because it comes from us. I mean, it's not, you know, self-thinking entities, I think. Indeed, the philosophers haven't been too involved in the creation of this. It's definitely the capitalists and the technologists. It's, it's something to bear in mind that it's appealing maybe to our worst interests. And then as a scientist, sometimes it can be difficult, I imagine, to bring across the hard data to reach the average person. So what for you is the importance of telling stories and the environmental humanities? What is the importance of that to engage public policy changes? I'm very much siding with the young activists and all that. I get, I get sad with observing their depression. I get very, very sad with the statements by young people saying that they consider not having children because what is the world that is putting them into? I think that we have to keep an optimism. We have to keep a way of being able to act in a constructive way. I mean, so the Yellow West and in France and the, you know, the Trump movement in the States and, and very many places we see movements of people that in some sense, educationally, economically, are sort of left behind and they're sort of almost unreachable with the green agenda. That's a chance that we have to face in a positive way. 
instead of shouting in all companies now, if you could convince by action, I think this is also what Joe Biden does. I mean, working in a clean windmill factory is probably much nicer than being in a coal mine. If you could sell that story to people and make this happen in a way where you have these the social aspects and so on, and also have some more optimism with the younger generation that, that together we can do a lot by pointing to things that are manageable more than just, you know, moving yourself to a friend go. Things like that, you know, of course, creates attention. Exactly. We do need to move in that positive direction. And there's health benefits as well when you're working together for a common goal. And I just want more of us to get on board. So thank you, Peter Dietlifson, for your positive, constructive approach, sharing your scientific knowledge and insights into complex systems and tipping points that underline the seriousness of the climate crisis. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producers on this episode were Katie Foster and Ava Clancy. One Planet Podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.